and energies and, and leading us week in and week out through the Christmas season. Um, we've been in, yeah, absolutely. We've been uh, working through a series on the virgin birth, and I just wanted to kind of put a capstone on that today by going back to one of the essentials that we talked about or established several weeks back ago. Let me first just bring those up. We said there's three reasons uh, why the virgin birth is to be considered an essential doctrine at the beginning of this whole series. Uh, one of those was that the virgin birth uh, fulfills prophecy. So in the Old Testament, it was prophesied that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. Isaiah chapter 7 um, points that out there. And so this is one of the criteria that the rabbis of Jesus' day were looking for, uh, that this messianic figure would be born of a virgin. And so Jesus fulfills that. 750 years, Isaiah said this before um, Jesus would come and fulfill it. Another of the reasons why the virgin birth is an essential doctrine is because it established God as Jesus' father, not Joseph. That is that Jesus is of divine origin. Now I just want to be clear in that statement. Sometimes we might think that Jesus was created or that Jesus was born in some respects, but Jesus is co-eternal with God the Father. He shares all the attributes that God the Father and God the Holy Spirit share. Uh, but the concept of God as his father just shows us the relationship that the son, that part of the Godhead, uh, is submitted to the will of the father, as is the Holy Spirit. And so it establishes that relationship. But the point is that um, the virgin birth shows us, puts on, puts on display, puts center, front and center for us to see, is that Jesus is of divine origin. This is no ordinary human being that we're dealing with here. He's fully God as well as fully man. The third uh, essential or reason why it's an essential doctrine is because um, the virgin birth allowed for Jesus to be born out from under the curse. So he was not born the way you and I come into the world. Uh, rather, he was born not like Adam and Eve would have come into the world out from under the curse. So the curse that Adam produced um, and that contaminated the, the human race, uh, Jesus was not born with that same contamination, or that same taint uh, of the sinful nature. And so that's really the point that I want to speak to today, is that third point where Jesus is born out from underneath of the curse. And there's three questions that help us get at that. I'll give you the three questions and then our scripture for today. Our three questions are, what is the problem that Jesus came to fix? Why was it that Jesus was the person who had to come to fix it? And then finally, how does the virgin birth and Christmas fit into all of this uh, story? So those are our three questions. That's going to guide us. Our text comes from Luke chapter 1. Uh, it's the same text we've read a couple of times before. I'm going to ask for you to stand to your feet. We'll be reading verses 26 and 27, 30 and 31, 34 and 35. This is where the angel comes to Mary, tells her this good news about her baby. Here we go, verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Verse 30. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Verse 34. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. You may be seated. Thank you so much. So again, these three questions are going to guide us as we walk through um, this concept of the third of the reasons why uh, the virgin birth is an essential doctrine. And the first of those questions was, what was the problem that Jesus came to fix? Um, the answer, that's a theological question. 
And so the answer to that has to be a theological answer. And so that's going to take us all the way back to Genesis to the beginning of where sin first entered into the world. So take a look at Genesis chapter 2, beginning at verse 15 with me. This is Adam and Eve in the garden. It says, And then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work and to keep it. The Bible says that God made Adam from the dust of the ground. He made Eve from a rib of Adam's side. And then God put him in the garden with two jobs. And the first job was to cultivate the ground, uh, to uh, enjoy the garden. And then the second job was for him to enjoy living in an intimate personal relationship with his creator, with Almighty God. And there in the garden, God gave Adam and Eve only one restriction. He says in chapter 2 and verse 16, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, verse 17, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. You say, Gordon, wait a minute, just a second. Uh, it seems to me that there in verse 17 there's a contradiction. And the contradiction is that God said that when they eat of this fruit, of this tree, of the knowledge of good and evil, that they're not supposed to eat from it, that they're going to die. Well, Adam lived to be uh, about 930 years old. So uh, what's the Bible talking about here? Isn't there some sort of a contradiction here? Well, friends, let me answer that um, apparent contradiction. And the answer to that is that there are two kinds of deaths that are described in the Bible. The first is a physical death. We all know about that. But there's also a spiritual death. It is true that Adam and Eve did not die physically right away, although their eventual death was part of that curse. But the Bible teaches that spiritual death takes place in us and that their spiritual death at the time of them consuming of that fruit was immediate. Um, over in Genesis chapters 1 through 3, it tells us that before Adam and Eve ate of this tree, that they used to walk in the garden. And they talked in the garden with their creator. Um, they would spend time in deep personal relationship with their creator. And all of that radically changed as soon as they ate from this tree. Um, for instance, in Genesis 3 and verse 8, it says that they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. So this is after Adam and Eve had sinned. And then look at how the relationship changed. It says, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Now, Adam and Eve had never, before this moment, had never hidden themselves from God before. Never had they felt afraid of God before this moment. So what happened? What was it all of a sudden that destroyed this free and open relationship that they had with God? Well, that was uh, part of the problem was that they had died spiritually. They had sinned, and they had died spiritually, and that uh, messed up, if you would, their relationship with their Creator. Um, not only did their spirits die, but this would result in the whole human race dying spiritually as well. And that, that's problem number one, that the Lord Jesus went to the cross to fix. The Bible says that by their disobedience that Adam and Eve injected or, inf or sent an infection, if you would, into the human race. Um, and the Bible calls that a sinful nature, an inborn instinct to do wrong, a bent towards sin, a natural inclination to disobey God and his moral law. And every person born from the union of human sperm and egg is born with this sin nature, like it or not. You say, Gordon, hold on just a second. I mean, you don't really believe this stuff, do you? Uh, I mean, it sounds like it's just uh, some sort of a fairy tale story that we read here at the beginning of the Bible that's just trying to describe some concepts here. You don't really believe that, that there's this like um, sin, nature, or whatever you want to call it, this bent towards sin that people are actually born with, that they come into the world with. I mean, you don't, are you, you sure that, that you're not just making stuff up here, that you don't, you don't really believe that? Well, one thing I know is that nobody had to teach me or coach me in how to lie. 
I, I came out of the womb with that uh, all, all by myself. I, I knew exactly how to do that. And no one had to show me the ropes when it came to being selfish or to being disobedient or feeling jealous or feeling or losing my temper. All of those things came very natural to me. Friends, this stuff comes as natural to you and me as breathing or the urge to eat. So yes, a sinful nature, an inbred, inborn instinct to do wrong is part of our human DNA. I do believe that. And if you're not convinced, go spend more time with two and three-year-olds and you'll discover very quickly that a sinful nature is something we're born with. Now the flip side to all that is that being good is actually doesn't come very easy to us, that we have to discipline ourselves, and we have to think about that, and we, it's not just a natural instinct for us to do, always do the right thing and to be good. Um, it's interesting that science is finally catching up with the Bible on this topic. Uh, Time Magazine, this is an article dating back to 2001, something I've just kind of held on to for some years. Time Magazine, in an article entitled Science and Original Sin, said this, and I quote, it says, the doctrine of original sin says that at birth, we all inherit Adam's sinfulness. But it is also a claim about human nature. It says that we are inclined to do wrong, that we all have a hereditary dark side. And the article goes on to say this, that that hereditary dark side, that sin results from biological drives passed through the human lineage ever since its origins, and then it makes this assess assessment. It makes scientific sense. That position makes scientific sense, end of quote. You know what? God has been telling us this all along, right? And science has finally figured it out as well. Um, now, because we all have this Adamic sin nature, the Bible teaches that this sin nature universally will result in every human being committing a sin. It's not that we come into the world condemned. It's not that we are born into the world broken in our relationship with Almighty God. It's that this Adamic sin nature somewhere along the line will result in, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Look at Romans chapter 5, verse 12. It says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men. Why did death spread to all men? Because all sinned. Friends, it's not because Adam sinned that this spread. It's because all have sinned um, that I experienced spiritual death. It's not because, it's because all sinned. It's because I have sinned. God doesn't condemn me because of what somebody else did. God does not condemn me to hell because of what somebody else did. God condemns me because of what I did. What Adam gave me was the bent, the natural inclination to sin that would then result universally in all people sinning. A fallen sinful nature, a sin, uh, sinful nature would result in every person sinning. Now, I know, I know, you, you can tell me about this on the way out of church. That that's not what all theological schools teach. Uh, there are some, some theological schools that teach that you come out of the womb that at, at conception, that you are condemned from that moment forward, and that's what some theological schools teach. And there are people that argue back and forth on this, and they've been doing this for hundreds of years. Um, but if you want to dig into that a little bit further, we preach a sermon on this back in Romans. We did a series through Romans, Romans chapter 5. You can go back and listen to that and uh, get all the particulars of it. But if I'm wrong, okay, if I'm wrong, this is just, just so you know what's at stake. If I'm wrong in what I'm saying here and what I'm teaching here this morning, that we're all born with a sinful nature, that that's what we inherit from Adam. We don't inherit condemnation, but we inherit a sinful nature from Adam. If I'm wrong in saying that, if we really are, we inherit condemnation from Adam. Like we, from the moment of conception, get this, I just want to make sure we understand what's at stake, that if at the moment of conception we are condemned, then that means that every aborted baby and every unrepentant infant 
that has not heard and responded to the good news of Jesus that passes away before they have that chance, that every one of them spend an eternity apart from God. Friends, not only would that be unfair, not only would that be unthinkable, but according to the Bible, it would be biblically wrong. Because the Bible says, Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, death spread to all men because all sinned. It doesn't say because Adam sinned. So God holds me responsible for what I do. That's just something for us to think about, okay? And so that's problem number one, that the Lord Jesus went to the cross to resolve. But you say, Gordon, maybe we are spiritually dead. Maybe, uh, you know, that keeps us from having an intimate personal relationship with God. But is this problem so monumental that Jesus had to go to the cross to fix this problem? Um, well, it is an important problem, and it did need to be fixed, and here's why it needed to be fixed. And this is the second problem that Jesus came to fix. Now, problem number two is that people who enter physical death already having died spiritually, which is the universal result of coming into the world with a sinful nature eventually, you are going to willfully transgress a known law of God. Um, and when you do, then that results in spiritual death. And when you when you physically die then, having spiritually died, then you will face eternal separation from God in a horrible place that the Bible calls hell. Now, I know that that is not a popular topic in today's world, um, but the fact that we don't want to talk about it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. Um, listen to what Jesus said in the Bible about hell. He's telling the story about two men who died. One went to hell, one went to heaven, and the fellow who is in hell cries out, Luke chapter 16 and verse 24, he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. This is a guy in hell. He says, and send Lazarus to dip the tip end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. Just give me a little drop of water because I am in anguish in this flame. And then in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 10 describes hell as a place where the people in it will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Friends, the Bible tells us that hell, number one, is a real place and that real people go there. And number two, the Bible tells us that hell is a place where the people in, who inhabit it are awake and are aware. I mean, this guy was crying out to Father Abraham, send somebody over here to give me some relief. Uh, they're being tormented, they're burning, they're suffering, and they're aware of it. Number three, the Bible tells us that the people there are, for, are there for all of eternity. It says forever and ever. There is no relief in sight. It is the place of no return. Friends, listen, when Jesus went to the cross, he knew about the awful reality of hell. He knew about that. Jesus would not have died on the cross for a myth. He would not have died on the cross for something that he thought was just a legend. In fact, he died on the cross um, and because he knew this was a real place. He went to the cross to save you and me from having to go there. All right, let's summarize what we learned so far. Well, we've learned that Jesus was out to fix a twofold problem. Number one was that he was going to resuscitate our dead spiritual selves. And number two, he was out to save us from an eternity apart from God. And that leads us to our second question, which is, why was it that Jesus had to be the person to go to the cross? I mean, why was he the one that was, had to be the one to fix this and not somebody else? Well, that's a good question. Remember what we've learned already. God's holiness demands that a death penalty be paid by each member of Adam's race. Romans 6 and verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. In the New Testament, God instituted a system, though, where he begins to talk about how there can be a substitute for your sins and mine. Uh, but that the substitute had to meet certain requirements. And the requirements were that the substitute had to be perfect. 
It had to be flawless. It had to be spotless. It had to be blemishless. And the Bible makes it clear that these animal sacrifices were just a temporary fix for our sin problem. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 14 or verse 4 says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. To achieve a permanent solution for man's sin problem, sooner or later a man would have to die. Uh, God wasn't just going to continue on forever the system of animal sacrifice. Uh, but remember that this man would have to be like the animals that were sacrificed, have to be spotless, have to be blemishless, they have to be perfect. Well, all of a sudden, guess what? None of us can meet that requirement because none of us are without sin. None of us can possibly live a sinless life. And so the only way that God could fix this problem was that he, he God, would have to become human himself, is that he, God, would have to enter into our world as a fully a human being himself, and that he would have to go and die on the cross as our spotless, perfect, sinless sacrifice himself. Folks, that's exactly what God did in the person of Jesus Christ. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15 that Jesus was tempted in every way as we are, yet was without sin. Remember what we've already learned, that every human being conceived has a sin nature in it, and so a normal human conception could never have produced the kind of body that Jesus needed. And so that takes us to our third question, which is, how does the virgin birth then tie into all of this stuff about the Lord Jesus? Why, is it, why did he have to be born of a virgin? Uh, how, why does that all tie together? Um, and so the virgin birth tells, teaches us that, again, a normal human conception wouldn't produce the kind of body that Jesus needed, the sinless body that had no sin nature that would not universally then result in him living, um, or, or, have, having a sinless life. And so how are we going to get God into a body that's human but that's not sinful? Well, that's exactly what the Christmas time and the virgin birth was all about. The body that was produced for Jesus was not the typical joining of sperm and egg, and therefore Jesus had no sin nature. Now, there's a small problem there. Some of you maybe a couple of weeks ago when we brought this up, I think it was actually last week. I, it's all kind of jumbled at this point. But we talked about the Immaculate Conception. We talked about how, well, if Joseph didn't bring a compliment, but Mary did, well, isn't Mary have a sinful nature? Doesn't Mary have sin in her life? I mean, she's a human being. I mean, the only person that's ever lived the whole in the history of the world that lived without sin was the Lord Jesus. And now, all of a sudden, Mary's bringing a portion of the body that Jesus would inhabit. That becomes a problem. And so the Catholic Church, Catholic theologians, uh, came up with this concept to try and solve this problem of the Immaculate Conception. Again, the Immaculate Conception doesn't deal with Jesus's virgin birth, but rather identifies that Mary herself was a product of a virgin birth, that Mary had no sin nature, um, just like Jesus would have no sin nature. And therefore, the product of Mary's womb, right, would be a baby that was born sinless and perfect out from under the curse. And so they came up with some other theology to add to that, saying that Mary didn't, not only did she have no sin nature, she was born of a virgin herself, but she also uh, did not sin. She was sinless. Um, so that's, again, that's one way of counting. But again, you're just, if Mary, though, had sinned, right, then we're back to the same problem of Ad, like Adam and Eve producing a child and she's passing on the curse. And so they'd have to create this thing where Mary was sinless as well. Well, that's one theory, if you would, uh, thinking about it. I've got a different theory for you, and I'll just throw this out there. And I think it's a lot less complex, and it uh, has a lot less what-ifs that are necessary. Um, 
And so my theory is this, and you can do with it what you want to do with it, but uh, the Holy Spirit, here's my theory, is that the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary, that the Holy Spirit brought a fully fertilized egg and placed that in the womb of Mary. And so Mary served as a surrogate mother for the Lord Jesus. Um, again, that's just my theory, just kind of how I'm looking at this. Because, again, how can any human being contribute to this body that the Lord Jesus, this perfect body, how can any human being contribute to that? Because um, the result would always be, whether it was Joseph or Mary, would always be a, a sinful nature uh, that would be born in that human being. And so I just see Mary as a surrogate mother, just like I see Joseph as Jesus' adoptive father. Neither Joseph nor Mary brought anything to the conception, but that Mary and Joseph did raise Jesus. They did love Jesus. They did nurture him as their own. Um, and that's my theory. And again, you can do with that what you want. You can spit it out, throw it away, whatever. But the point is that when Jesus offered himself on the cross as our sin substitute, that he did so as the sinless Son of God, and that as such it was an acceptable sacrifice. It was a sacrifice that not only could God accept, but that God did accept. To put it another way, the virgin birth was the only way that God could create a body for the Lord Jesus that he could then take to the cross and offer in our place, a body that was unblemished, a body that was untainted by sin, and, who, and a body whose death could serve as an acceptable substitute for sinners. I know that's a whole lot of stuff to throw at you. We, it's almost like a review in some ways of some of the stuff we've kind of covered over the last several weeks. But I just wanted to throw that together for you this morning. Let's review what we've talked about so far. We've learned, number one, that God's justice demands death for the penalty of sin. We've also learned, number two, that Jesus' death on the cross as the sinless substitute would satisfy the demand of God's holiness and his justice. And for every person who avails themselves of it, and this is the good news of the Bible, that the Lord Jesus paid the penalty for our sins. And folks, once our penalty of sin is paid, well, all kinds of great things happen for us. Number one is God is free to grant us eternal life in heaven. And number two, God is now free to exempt us from hell. And number three, God is now free to send his Holy Spirit to us and lead us into an intimate relationship with himself as we travel through this life. You say, all right, Gordon, you keep talking about how we need to avail ourselves of the death of Christ. I need to make this my own. I mean, what does that mean? How do we do that? What difference does any of this make, right, to my life? Well, we avail ourselves of the death of Christ the same way we go to the doctor. Uh, it's very simple. You, know, you, you go to the doctor. What is it that you do? The first thing you do is you say, doc, I got a problem. You're not there because you are well. You're there because you're sick. And you say, Doc, I got a problem, and you describe what the problem is, and this is a problem that you can't fix, right? That's why you're there. If you could fix it, if you could take some stuff over the counter, then you could fix this problem, but you can't. There's nothing that you can do to fix this problem that you've got. So you go to the doctor, and you admit that you have a problem that you can't fix. Secondly, you ask the doctor, well, what's your solution? And the doctor tells you what the prescription is. The doctor gives you this and says that if you take this, if you do this, then you'll be well again. And so that's the same thing it is when it comes to a relationship with Jesus, is that we have to come to him first saying, hey, doc, hey, Jesus, I have a problem. It's a problem I can't fix. It's this problem of sin in my life. And the only way that this God's justice and his holiness can be solved is for a sacrifice to be made. And that would be me. I'd have to die. But you're saying that you would, you've died in my place. That's the prescription. That's the solution to my sin problem so that I won't have to go to the cross, so that I won't have to die. 
for my sin, so I won't have to pay the penalty for that. You've already paid that penalty, and that's right. And so then you accept that solution. You accept that prescription that the Lord Jesus is offering to you um, for yourself. The Bible talks about this over in John chapter 3 and verse 16. It reads like this, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whosoever believes in Him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. Now that statement is what we refer to in theological circles as a conditional promise. The promise is that you'll have eternal life. That's the promise. That's a wonderful promise, isn't it? But there's a condition in order to receive the promise. And the condition is that you have to believe. Now, belief is more than just head knowledge. It's more than just saying, yeah, I, I agree that Jesus was a real person and I know that he died on the cross. Um, it's, it's more than that. It's actually taking what Jesus did, taking the prescription that he created, and then applying that to your own life, to your own heart, making that your own. Rather than going to God and saying, God, you know what, I, all, I want to offer you all the good things that I've done in the world. I mean, I, I helped out with my parents uh, as they were aging. I helped uh, folks at the grocery store when they looked like they needed help. I went down to the food pantry. I mean, I did all these wonderful things, God, throughout my life. And so because of that, can't I get into heaven? And God's going to say, did you take the prescription that I offered you? Did you take the prescription that I gave you? Did you take the prescription that I wrote you? Because, friends, that's the only thing, the only solution to our sin problem. And so belief means putting your faith, your whole, think about this, your, your trust for how you're going to get to heaven in what Jesus accomplished on the cross rather than in your own good works. And so that's the condition to meeting the promise. Now, there's one other wonderful word in that statement, and it's the word whosoever. So if you've met the condition to receive the promise, we know that we get eternal life. But it says that it's open to whoever. Or in some, uh, some text it says whosoever. Which means that I don't have to look the part. I don't have to clean myself up and, and dress the right way. I can just come to God as I am. That God, this offer, this invitation of his prescription is written and it's available to anybody who would avail themselves of it. Anybody who would accept uh, this this prescription that Jesus has written us. You know, the good news of Christmas is that God's solution to our sin problem has come into the world. It would culminate with Jesus' death, his suffering, his death, and his resurrection. Um, and so, friends, when we come, that's the meaning of this time of year, that hope has come into the world, that our prescription for our sin problem, God's love, for us has been manifested, has been made known in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus has come to fix the problem that you and I have. All we have to do then is accept and embrace what he did for us. Let's pray together. Most gracious God, we thank you so much for your goodness to us. We thank you for this time of year. We are reminded um, again of what you accomplished on our behalf and that all of this was done, Lord, because of your great love for us. Um, for no other reason, Lord. Um, it wasn't to suit your fancy, Lord, or to uh, do something for you, Lord. You did this for us because you loved us. You were motivated out of your great love for us. And so, Lord, we are thankful. Lord, as we come around this table, we are reminded of your broken body and of your shed blood, of the price that was paid so that we could have this promise of eternal life. Lord, encourage our hearts today. If there be any here among us, Lord, who have not made that decision, 
to embrace you, to avail themselves of this wonderful prescription that you have written to us. Or may they just in these quiet moments this morning invite you into their life and admit that they have a sin problem and invite you to become their Lord and their Savior. We thank you again. We commit this time to you in Christ's holy name. Amen.